Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Good morning, Nia. Hey, Augie, how you doing? I'm good, how are you? I'm good, thank you. So, um, in my off job as president, yes, uh, I was thinking about a budget. <laughs> okay. I was thinking maybe I ought to have one. Probably. I'm just out of curiosity. Does it work like that movie Dave, where I get a, a piece of yellow legal paper and I sit down and I say rent for the White House zero because I'm not going to pay any rent, and power? Well, if I put the solar panels back on, that would be lower. Um, she said slightly bitterly. So, um, like, do I get to do that, or do I, I mean, is there a formal process? I bet there's a formal, you have the look on your face like there's a formal process. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what that look is, but there is a formal process. (laughs) There's a formal, no, the look is more like, you're a loon, put down the legal pad. That was kind of what the look was more like. Okay, yes, there is a formal process. Do So, do presidents... Okay, so I know there are two kinds of, like, there are budget, there's a budget office in the Congress, there's a budget office in the White House, I know all that stuff. I mean, I don't know that stuff, but I'm going to ask you about that stuff. Okay. But what I first want to ask you about is, so the president gets into the job, mm-hmm. and he, currently always, he, yes. um, maybe someday my people, but... Um, or, or, or we could just say they. <laughs> we could say they, but I prefer he because then that way someday I'll be able to say they. Yes. Which will make me happy. All right. So he um, sits down with what? The secretaries? And he says, so how much money do you need next year? Is that, I mean, like, do they get beer and pizza and they sit down and talk about? No. Because no. that would make it more fun. <laughs> I would think. Well, I actually uh, agree with you. I, I think a lot of things, okay, would be more fun. Can be improved with beer and pizza. Be beer and pizza. Right? Through the judicious <laughs> application. Yes, right. You know, get a few pies, okay, get some adult refreshment. And, you know, we wake up the next morning and voila, there's the budget. <laughs> okay. That would be awesome. Wait, what's this line item for unicorns? <laughs> Who put that in here? And why, Sorry, and, and, and why is the federal government spending so much money on coffee? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's Augie in the corner. Um, no. Uh, so basically, if you look at the U.S. Constitution, the budget process is supposed to start with the House of Representatives. Um, Wait, the federal budget process? Yes, it is. Even though it says on the front of the giant tome that kills <laughs> spiders, <laughs> president's budget? Uh, yes. Okay. And I'm going to get to that in just a moment. Okay. okay. So I'll just table that. No, yeah. We'll, we'll get there. Right? Okay. So uh, the, the, the logic of the framers was that the people's representative, uh, representatives, the, the people's house, um, would, start the, uh, would start the budget process. Um, because, you know, the concern was um, the budget should reflect the will, the desires, um, the demands of the people. You know, one of the criticisms that the framers had of their colonial experience was, uh, you know, budgets were passed by the British crown and then taxes were imposed on the colonies. Oh, that whole taxation without without representation representation thing. Yes. Okay. So you have a guy in a wig. (laughs) So 
Didn't yep. he? Didn't yes. he King George? Okay, you, yes. I paused you there. I'm sorry. I didn't well, I was it. just thinking about how they we... They were all guys in wigs, wigs really. Yeah, so. yeah, well, how we could add that to our uh, beer and pizza budget-making <laughs> process. <laughs> that would be awesome. And everybody has to wear a powdered wig. <laughs> yes, right. That would make that meeting short. <laughs> so, you know, so it, it, it would be a house party with beer and pizza. But anyways, I digress. So that, according to the Constitution, it's supposed to start with the House um, and uh, the House of Representatives. For, throughout the 19th century, Congress controlled the budget process. So basically, agencies, and there weren't a lot of them. I mean, think about this. When uh, the Constitution was ratified in the first United States Congress, there was basically the Department of War, the Department of the Treasury. You had an attorney general, and you had a postmaster general. So really, were, that's it? You yeah. didn't even have Secretary of State to— well, you had, yeah, argue me. with people across well, you had other secretary, countries. Yeah, so you had Secretary of State, okay, Secretary of War, okay, which became the Department Remember of Defense, Defense okay. after our okay. last World War. Okay, but we didn't. There was a not a, a large number of federal agencies. The federal government didn't do a lot of work, so the budget process was pretty simple. Was that because the founders were just not fond of a big federal government? Well, I mean. In part that, but also at that time, most of the government's work in the country was done at the state and local level. Okay. All right. Which is still true in a lot of ways, isn't oh, it? Oh, sure. I mean, I okay. mean, uh, I mean, we talk about dysfunction in in Washington, but dysfunction in Richmond is worse for people in Virginia than dysfunction in Washington. Yeah, as as, as I remind my students, there are more people who work for state and local governments in the United States than actually work for the federal government. Okay. Yeah. That's very yeah. heartening and disheartening. Okay. And, 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 it goes and, both ways. Well, and... It, but that makes me sense of the whole politics are local yeah, thing. Yeah. Okay. So it, you don't see the federal government in terms of agency, scope of work, number of employees actually increase until you get to the mid to late 1800s. You know, first with the Civil War. So, you know, we fight a war. Okay. Uh, but then the industrialization. Uh, with industrialization, as the economy changed from agriculture to manufacturing, um, you begin to see what economists, I, I love some of the names of concepts that economists come up with, the negative externalities of this new economy. Things like people working really long hours. How do we control the, you know, for the mm. effects of that? Um, the child labor. Yeah, child labor or, you know, people working 60 hours a week and, Okay, you know, what What does that mean in terms of their health and life expectancy? Ah, uh, deplorable conditions, conditions. which uh, OSHA theoretically uh, fixes. Okay, and, but we don't get OSHA until much later. <laughs> well, but <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. but that yes. I see what you're saying yeah. is though the necessity came about because yeah, those things to, were happening. So you have the departments it, but, get added as, as, as a the, thing is needed. Yeah, as the economy changes, society changes, the public puts, you know, put pressure on elected officials Members of Congress uh, created new agencies. The federal government budget gets larger. But well into the 20th century, Congress controlled the process. So agencies would go to the appropriations committees. Both the House and the Senate have budget committees. They're known as appropriations uh, to work out what the agency would get in a budget. Um, oh, so it didn't go through the president. It didn't so go through the president. Department the, of Agriculture yeah. sent somebody up to the Hill 
and yes. sat down with the committee on, on excuse me, the, the House Appropriations, Appropriations Committee, committee. And said, so this is what we think we need for the next year to run the Department of Agriculture. And I guess they had it broken out in relative line item. item. Like, this is what we need for people. This is what we need for overhead. This is what we need for loans. You know, the the different things they do. And then I guess they just went through it and said, we'll give you. I mean, I assume they didn't get everything they asked for, probably. but, But they probably got a reasonable amount. And then they just went away and. Yeah. And. How'd they get the check? What do you mean the check? How does... uh, So, is money real? In most instances, with government at all levels today, no. Okay. So, when appropriation says, we shall give you $3 billion, somebody doesn't get a check for $3 billion. No. Like... It gets transferred... uh, Electronic uh, things move from one place to another. Yeah, to the Department of Treasury. Okay. Okay. Okay, but we're jumping ahead here. Okay, okay. sorry. All right. All right. So th- this process controlled by Congress, um, you know, members of Congress like loved it because they could go ahead and put stuff into agency budgets that would benefit their district or their state. I believe that was known as pork barrel, barrel projects. <laughs> yes, pork barrel right? spending. Okay. Um, and if it went to specifically a district or a state, it's called earmarking. Okay. You mark it for a specific district or state project, which then would allow a member of Congress to go ahead and say, please reelect me because I'm bringing home the pork to my district or the state. So being on the Appropriations Committee was the the sweetest job. You wanted that one before you got any other committee. So those were the people who had been in the longest. They were the people who knew Knew everybody everybody. and worked the system. Yes. Okay. Okay. But this Congress-driven process had uh, numerous critiques. Oh, you think? Yeah, one of the biggest pork barrel maybe was one of the critiques. Yeah. One of the one of the biggest complaints, and this came from the then progressive movement, which is not the same as today's progressive movement. We could probably do another podcast on that. See note later. Yes, progressive movements. Okay, but the progressives argued that. Um, uh, this led to, um, you know, uh, corrupt, poorly run government. That you frequently had uh, money spent on unnecessary projects, unnecessary agency activity. That if we wanted a better budgetary process, we wanted good government, and that was the, you know, that that was the unifying cry of many progressives. Okay, well, and it is a. Good thing to want. Yes. Um, you know, these are taxpayer dollars being spent. So are we spending these spending these dollars wisely? The progressives argued that um, uh, government budgets at all levels of government should be executive driven. Um, and their model was what you would see in the corporate world, the private sector. Basically, the CEO comes up with a budget um, with their staff, and then presents it to the shareholders who just broadly approve, okay, the budget. The specific, if the, the specifics are controlled by whom? The CEO, right? Oh. And that's okay. the model that the progressives came up with, right? So the progressives eventually convinced the United States Congress that the president should at least start the budget process. 
And this is what um, uh, happened uh, with the uh, Budget and Accounting Act of 1921. Congress actually gives the president, the Congress gave away its authority to start the budget process to the president. But it, but it didn't change the Constitution. No. So theoretically, it could take that power back, back if they wanted to by doing a, yes. an act. And then, yeah, Congress could. And then, of course, the president would veto that because why would you would not want, want that power? Right, and yeah. you have to send it back for. We've covered this in another podcast, podcast. but you'd have to send it back for an override, right, veto, you know, override right, vote. For, and then you, and but you could change that back. So that's yes. not an amendment to the, to the Constitution. Constitution. No, it's it was just an act. Yeah, it was just. It was, but it seems a little bit slightly like foolish to just give away well, uh, it, that kind of power. Well, in part, the United States Congress recognized that um, it was not doing a very good job with the budget process. Oh, okay. Okay. And, and remember, we live in a time to where, you know, because of partisan ideological polarization, we just go ahead and assume that if one party or one group is making a suggestion, well, then it's got to be bad. Okay, but think about, for instance, in that period of time, in the early 1900s, you actually had both Republicans and Democrats agree to the passage of the 16th Amendment creating an income tax. I mean, they agreed to it. Both Republicans and Democrats liked the idea. It was in response to a Supreme Court ruling that said an income tax was unconstitutional. And you had both political parties, both political branches, both the president and the Congress, a number of presidents that said, we need an income tax. We need a, 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 a sustainable source of government revenue. Because prior to the income tax, the primary f uh, source of government revenue were tariffs on imported goods. Well, if we're not importing goods or we have a trade imbalance, what does that do for our revenue source for our federal government? Okay, um, so you you're talking about a different period of time. You 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 actually had people in both parties in both houses of Congress who were like, yeah, we need to get control of this budget process because what is well, and we need steady income. Need we need to be able to depend on. on that. And a certain amount of money, and, right? And, and that and part and of the projection is yeah, and is then and in regards out how much you'll get, and in regards to the budget process, for members of Congress, they wanted somebody else to start the conversation, to start the process. So because of that law, presidents are required to submit the president's budget to the United States Congress the first Monday of February. Okay, really, there's it's a. That's the it's, time. Yeah, that is the time. The first Monday of February. February. So back to your original question. So, you know, what do presidents do in crafting a presidential budget? Well, unlike the movie, Dave. <laughs> I love that movie. <laughs> I love Charles Gordon. I love that he comes. He's an accountant and he comes to the White House and he's trying to find money. So he just starts moving stuff around. Yes. Which I feel certain is not legal. Uh, you can't just move money around. Well, I don't well, know. It's about to be discussed, I suppose, in court. Um, yeah, but but in many instances, uh, federal agencies can. But we will get to that. <laughs> okay. So. But anyway, they want to find money, and the the premise of the movie for people who haven't seen it is is uh, well, there's too much premise to go into. But there is um, 
a thing they want to save, a thing that the president wants to save. And so he calls in a friend of his to sit down with the budget and go through line by line and find money so that they can do this thing. It's not unlike what's currently happening. It's sort of awesome what's currently happening um, with President Trump wanting to find money for the wall, right? So they sat down with the budgets and they looked to where they could find pockets of money so they could move that around and do what they want to do. Um, So life imitating art, as it were. Kind (laughs) of. Well, currently, I mean, the attempts and yeah, uh, it works in the movie, by the way. I don't know that it's going to work in in real life it also works in the movie in this sort of feel good triumphant way which i'm not sure that budgets ever feel good or are triumphant. yeah like mr smith goes to washington yeah, yeah, yeah you know yeah it's just we we love political movies but they're not always realistic but that's all right because they oftentimes draw upon values that you know many of us hold uh, near and dear um, Heck yeah, Independence Day. You know that uh, rousing speech by Bill Pullman. You know, you know sign the, me up. They're aspirational. Yeah. Okay? Um, you know that's part of you know the the one of the values of media and art. Right. You know, they oh, are. presidents usually look really good in films. I mean, aside from yeah. Mars Attacks, right? Like presidents <laughs> yeah. usually look really good. Wait, wait, in was like, that was, that like, was Jack Nicholson, right? Yes, yeah. Harrison Ford in Air Force One. <laughs> yes. and I mean, like, the, and Morgan Freeman whenever he plays the president, oh. like they always look really. They're sort of stately and really cool. And yeah, I, pretty much any movie movie where Morgan Freeman gets to act, you know, play the part of the authority figure. You know, I want to join whatever cause. Exactly. Right? Whether President, it be God, God, whoever he's playing, <laughs> yeah. I'm he's just awesome. Like, I'm like, sure, Morgan, I'll <laughs> go ahead and lay down my life for whatever cause you got going on, dude. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. He's, I'll just march with the penguins. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Yeah, right. But anyways, back to the president's <laughs> budget. Um, uh, so if the president is submitting a budget to Congress the first Monday of February, Actually, it takes about a year and a half to craft that budget. Oh, so the first year that a president is in office, he's using the other the guy's, guy's budget. budget. Yeah. Oh, that yeah, must really right. annoy him, chap his hide, as it were. Uh, yeah, I mean, if he didn't like that guy. Yeah, because wanna... I mean, because you know, to to give an example, uh, so Trump gets inaugurated in January. Okay, he wins election in November, yeah, like but the twenty third or twenty second of January, something like that. <laughs> Look that up in the Constitution, kids, because um, <laughs> neither one of us right now actually remember the precise date. Um, is it in the Constitution? Oh, see, now yeah. I'm embarrassed. I don't even know that it's in the Constitution. It is in the Constitution. Is it on like every, the first Monday? of? Is it one of those where it's the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November? We could pull it up on the computer right now. We could, now, but, but we're not going we're to. We're not going to. And, and it's not necessarily germane <laughs> to this topic, but. We'll so, put a link yeah, to the Constitution. Constitution yes. We should probably do that with yeah, everyone. We'll of just our put episodes. that at the top of the page. Here's the link to the Constitution. Start here. Yeah. <laughs> start start here for all answers, and then if you can't find it, look down the page. Listen to our podcast, um, <laughs> and we'll confuse you even more. So, so Trump takes office in January, and he's got to submit a budget roughly a couple of weeks later. He's not. He doesn't have time to go ahead and craft, you know, brand new a budget in two weeks. So basically, what he's done is take the draft that the Obama administration had been working on. That draft basically started, okay, so Trump takes office in 2017, wins election 2016, takes office in 2017. So basically the fall of 2015 
is when the Obama administration started work on the budget that was submitted to Congress the first Monday of February 2017. A year and a half. It takes that long. So you have to be prescient. I mean, you have to see. Yes. Like, yes. you have to plan for things that it may or may, or may, may not, not happen. Because like, if you're putting out stuff for, say, FEMA, yes. you, have to, you have to guess that there's going to be a Katrina in the in the next year and if you don't guess that, that you're and, in and trouble it, financially it, it, yes okay oh that's really hard okay I that, maybe i don't want to do this anymore okay <laughs> that's part, maybe i'll have someone else make my budget can i be president and have someone else make my budget well in fact you do okay in the office that actually basically runs this process for the executive branch is the office of management and budget it's part of the executive office of the president it was created with this Budget and Accounting Act in 1921. Ah. Okay, uh, it doesn't become the Office of Management and Budget until a little bit later on. But basically, it was Mike's office before that. It was uh, it was known as the Bureau of the Budget, and then it became the Office of Management and Budget. Bob, yes. it was Bob's office. I should have said Bob. Okay, but you no, know, it was that. Uh, and that's the acronym I put in my lecture notes when we talk about the federal government budget process. They're like Bob, who's Bob? It's the Bureau of the Budget, okay? But it was basically designed to go ahead and do that kind of difficult work that you just lamented. And that is, okay, do we think that the uh, nation's economy is going to grow? How fast will it grow? What will that mean for federal government uh, revenues, you know, taxes or otherwise? Do we think we're going to have a recession or a depression? Because if you do, then you typically people uh, get laid off. They uh, are unemployed. They don't pay oh, into so taxes. Um, uh, cuts uh, the money that's coming in. That's right. Industries um, uh, don't have as robust uh, corporate income tax payments. This all, all has a huge effect on uh, the nation's economy. Because we have a number of federal government programs uh, that are called entitlements, i.e., if you satisfy certain eligibility requirements, you are entitled to a payment from the government. What if we get a spike of, uh, of people who lose their jobs and they have to go on welfare? Or what if uh, the baby boom generation, a whole bunch of them decide to retire instead of working past the age of 70? These are all things the government has to predict before they go ahead and say to specific agencies, okay, now, what do you guys want, okay, in the next budget? So the first thing they got to do is make a prediction of what's our revenues. It's kind of sort of like, you know, your own You know home. your paycheck. Yeah, yeah. You're going to get your, your paycheck, paycheck. And you know roughly, uh, unless you're paid salaried, in which case you know exactly what, what you're, you're going to get. get. And then you have to project Predict. sort of. What are your expenditures? Okay. Okay. And we all do this as individuals, but with the federal government, it is a much larger <laughs> task. I was going to say some, a few more zeros <laughs> on the yeah, end of their right, income. So, yeah, right. Yeah, than and, mine. And and many more zeros in regards to payments, debts, right? Well, that kind of makes me feel better. Their rent yeah. is probably a lot more than mine. Yeah, I'm and just thinking. And their loan payments are much larger than yours. Who did they borrow money from? Uh, well, Who do we borrow money from? Uh, well. Or am I throwing a stick? Should we talk about that another well, time? Well, no, it, it's not. It's not okay. a bad. It's not a bad question to ask. I mean, because uh, 
you know, the, the U.S. federal government budget has, uh, in any fiscal year, by and large, um, since the 1920s, we've tended to uh, had deficits. We've we've spent more than we've taken in. The federal government... Which, if I did that at the level that the federal government does that, I'm just saying I would probably be in prison. Yes. You would I'd probably be in debtor's prison. prison. <laughs> if they even have debtor's prison anymore? Um, n- not technically, though <laughs> some states, according to critics, have equivalents. They put people in jail because they can't pay their fines um, or their bail or, bail their, or whatever. Which we, we'll get into it in another podcast. podcast. Okay. But because we run deficits, uh, the government has to borrow money. Okay. Well, um, typically the way the government uh, raises money beyond income taxes, um, uh, whether corporate or individual, is they sell securities, bonds. Right. Okay. Treasury bills. All right. Now, wealthy Americans, middle class Americans, even, you know, poor Americans might buy a U.S. government savings bond. You're actually buying some of the federal government's debt, if you will, because, you know, you are giving them money up front. And then later on, when you cash in the savings bond, the government owes you money. And there's a length of time, like you buy a bond, but you can't cash it in right away. You have to yeah, particularly hold it for a certain length of time. Yeah, or you something. have to allow it to mature if you want to get the full value of the bond, right? Okay. Treasury bills are, you know, very much like that. Um, but here's the thing: the the mass amount of money our federal government overspends every year, and, and by the way, there's like been only a few years since like World War II where we've actually had a surplus. The last time we had a surplus was during the Clinton administration at the tail end of the 1990s. Um, That's about 20 years ago. (laughs) Okay. For anybody doing the math. So we generally run deficits. So to raise that kind of capital, we have to sell a lot of government securities, treasury bills, savings, bonds, et cetera, et cetera institutions buy them in some cases other countries buy them i, I was going to ask you so they're they, they can be bought internationally there's n- there isn't there aren't people who aren't allowed to buy typically securities no. and bonds yeah, yeah typically no there are no limitations however i want to ask a question because this has been something that's come up in my mind a couple of times when i hear this on the news People will say, oh, we China owns all our debt. China owns all our debt. That's not true, isn't it? Isn't it the vast majority of that debt owned by Americans? Yes. American institutions or Americans yeah. individually no, I mean, yeah, buy I mean, the large portion yeah. of that. That's yeah. not really. Yeah. I mean, I mean it, if China decided tomorrow, I'm cashing in all my bonds, that would actually not bankrupt us as a nation. No, it would make it a little bit difficult. And by the way, China would never do that because uh, uh, China as a nation state basically needs Americans um, to continue to buy <laughs> their goods. Right. Yeah. If they threw our economy into a tailspin, it hurts them as much as it hurts oh, oh, us. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and that, that's, that's one of the fundamental tenets of, of, uh, of globalization, right? You, you basically get the nations of the world um, invested in doing well in the same economic system then they're less likely to go ahead and want to start things like wars because um, that would hurt. Because then they can't trade with those people. Yeah, it would hurt them as much as it would go ahead and hurt their enemy. But just numerically, 
they could do bad things to our economy, but they can't stop our economy because no, no. the the, the yeah. majority of that debt is yeah. owned by yeah e- even the um, most pessimistic of economists that i've read have suggested that uh the chinese government may have have ownership of somewhere between you know 10 to 15 percent of our uh government securities now again that could have a huge impact. Oh yeah, I mean, ten percent of our economy is quite a bit. Yeah, particularly if I won that in the lottery, I'd be very happy. Particularly because uh, the federal government's spending, as a percentage of our nation's overall gross domestic product, uh, depending on the year, but basically somewhere between twenty to twenty-five percent. Okay, well, you know, if all of a sudden our federal government had to stop spending to pay off, you know. Uh, 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 loans that uh, <laughs> that are you know owned by the Chinese government that would have a huge impact on our gross domestic product. But again, the the, the Chinese have a pretty strong incentive never to do that. Right. Okay. But back to the budget. Yeah. Okay. So the budget's scary enough without bringing in you know, sort of catastrophic uh, failure uh, of you know international international trade international political economy. Um, and, and if you're interested in that, uh, please, you know, consult with my colleagues, either Chris Saladino or Judy Twig, um, if, if you think uh, me and Nia's most recent um, uh, snippet of conversation um, uh, uh, doesn't even remotely cover it. it doesn't which re- they would agree re- with re- as re- well, re- I'm yes, sure. Yeah. So we go back to the budget. So starting in fall of 2015, the Obama administration asked OMB. Um, I to, love that. OMB! Uh, to uh, prepare uh, the president's budget uh, for 2017. Um, once OMB does a calculation of revenues versus expenditures, then they send out uh, a memo. It's actually uh, a memo to every agency uh, telling the agency, well, you know, this is what we want from each of you, either specifically or in general, in regards to uh, your budget request for the fiscal year. And by the way, when the president submits a budget, say in February of 2017, it's for the budget that will actually start in October of 2017. Right, because the federal, federal fiscal, fiscal year is October 1st, 1 to... September 30th. Right. This is completely... This is different off than every other, other thing. Yes. Oh, yeah. State That's... and local governments, okay, like VCU as a unit of the, the Commonwealth of Virginia, our fiscal year begins July 1st. Right. The federal. July 1 to June 30th. Um, the and fe- that's the state as well, too, right? The yeah. Commonwealth oh, of Virginia. Yeah. yeah. Every state, every local government in the United States has a July 1st to June 30th. Oh, this all the states. Oh, okay. okay. Not just us. Okay. The federal government used to have the same fiscal year. That changed in um, 1974 with the uh, Budget and Empowerment Act passed by Congress. It was a a budget law passed that was designed to go ahead and stop presidents from doing something that Nixon did. Nixon impounded funds. Impoundment is basically this. Congress passes a budget bill and says to the federal government, you can spend this money. Nixon, instead of vetoing the budget, would go ahead and say, okay, fine, I'll sign it. 
but if he didn't like certain agencies, he would impound their money so they wouldn't get to spend it. And this would upset the will of Congress. So members of Congress were like, no, you can't do that anymore, right? The other thing that law actually changed was the federal government's fiscal year. And they did it for a reason that like every college student and professor could appreciate. They did it because Congress came to the conclusion that they could never pass the budget on time if the fiscal year started on July 1st. Because what many members of Congress do in the summer is go back home and do constituent work necessary for their reelections. They, they basically DC even today is like a ghost town in the summer compared to the fall and the spring. It just that, so it's a college campus. Yeah, basically. In that sense. So I mean, there are people here, but not nearly in the numbers. No. Okay. So you still got the federal bureaucrats who work in D.C. in the summertime. <laughs> it's just the elected officials are like, "Hey, we're out of here," right? And because they are, they can never pass the budget. So they push back the fiscal year. <laughs> Rather than solve the problem of bailing, they and, they just like, well, if we wait till October when we're all back, because it's the fall and Washington is lovely in, in the, the fall. fall, then we'll get the we'll, we'll get. Washington the, is not always lovely like, in the summer. Yeah, I mean, come on now. I mean, I Anybody like anybody who's walked the mall in July. <laughs> yeah, I like hot and humid weather. I don't like DC's hot and humid weather, right? <laughs> But here's the thing. Since they passed that law, you want to guess how many times the federal, uh, uh, the United States Congress has passed the federal budget on time? Since 1974. Oh, I'm, my gosh. Since 1974. Um, how many times? I'm going to guess I'm going to guess more than half. So I'm going to guess 35. Wrong. <laughs> Am I high or low? Oh, you're way too high. They've never passed it on time since they made the never, never. Oh, so I was 35 too high. Okay, wow. Okay, so we're back to the. See me being optimistic. Yes. So we're back to the president's budget. So uh, OMB sends out the memo, right? Uh, the memo goes out typically uh, January, February. So a year before the president's budget gets submitted to Congress. Agencies then have to go ahead and work internally to come up with, you know, their budget with justifications. Okay. We have this much in personnel. We have this much in overhead. We, we need this, this much, much for, for this nuclear program, submarines. This program, we that program. We need this much for, yeah, yeah. you know, windmills. Yes. Whatever it is that we're doing. Yes. Right. And then they, uh, the agency send it back to OMB. OMB then spends the summer, early fall uh, tweaking it. Um, negotiating, if you will, with the agencies. <laughs> I kid you not. Okay. Really? So they'll call an agency and say, yeah, you we gotta... see here that on your budget it says um, $475,000 for trail mix. Can you explain, explain yes. like, what you're going to do with this much trail mix? Yeah, the Department of Agriculture says we want to hire 5,000 more um, uh, agri- park rangers. Uh, no, no, they don't work for them. That's no, interior. They, Sorry. Yeah, that's Wrong interior. agency. <laughs> okay. Um, cooperative extension agents, right? Ah. And OMB says, no. Okay. <laughs> we don't need 5,000 more yeah. people to run 4-H and, and yeah, you help, know, help farmers. And, and you, you, guys, you guys will get 500 and you'll like it, right? Or ah. the, or the, can the agency come back and try to say? Oh, of course they can. Okay. okay. So but it goes back and forth until somebody gets worn down. Yeah. Well, and let's face it. 
OMB usually has like the final word. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. So OMB then basically crafts uh, 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 a rough budget and then turns it over to the political people. Okay. Uh oh. We're talking about the White House staff, the you know the the president. And depending on the president, some get more involved with the budget process than others. Um, uh, my colleague Bill Newman, uh, who studies the presidency, loves to tell the story about Jimmy Carter. Uh, Jimmy Carter was a former governor of Georgia, so he had his hands all over the Georgia state budget. He becomes president. He would go ahead and have parts of the budget blown up onto big white sheets, you know, those sticky you know, white sheets that, you know, you, when you're doing conference presentations. Oh, yes. Okay. And he would post them on the around the walls of the Oval Office <laughs> where he would go through and say, I can't understand why this agency. Okay. Wow. Okay. That's on the side of really into the details. Then you have other presidents. One could argue perhaps too micromanaging. Much. Yes. Micromanagement. Yes. Um Ronald Reagan, on the other hand, Ronald Reagan just wanted the, shall we say, um, broad outline, the broad contours, right? He, well, but also you, you, from a presidential point of view, theoretically, you've hired people into the OMB who are, are good experts. and they know what they're doing sure. and, and you can trust them. I mean, part of that, I think, was that didn't Jimmy Carter struggle with trusting some of the people who worked for him? Sometimes yeah, I mean, he's a very, very smart man, and I think he wanted all the detail. Just well, in Carter, like many presidents, uh, uh, ran for the office in part, saying that uh, the the federal government needed to change. He was going to come into uh, D.C. and change, you know, how the federal government works. Don't they all say that? Pretty much all of them do. <laughs> I mean, you would be that's hard. a selling point for yeah, you would, to Americans yeah. is to say this stuff needs to change. It's funny because we. We're like, yes, it does, and then it never does. It never does, or we go ahead and say, yeah, but I didn't want you to change the that program. The thing I really liked. liked right? Yeah, the okay. thing I really like or the thing that benefits me. Okay. No, 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 you change the other person's stuff. Yeah, So then, the, hence partisanship. Yeah, so then the political people get involved, right? You know, they you know, start making calculations. Well, you know, if we cut this agency's budget, will this hurt this constituency or this part of – uh, of the uh, of the coalition that help us get elected, or how will this play in Congress? I mean, because OMB, though you know uh, they are aware of the politics of the budget process, OMB is trying to put together a budget that meets the broad, if you will, goals of the president. How they play politically, OMB is not all that necessarily concerned about because OMB is staffed with. You know, budget people, economists, um, you know, folks who can go ahead and do cost benefit analysis and basically say, well, if we have a federal government subsidized student loan program, this will have this kind of benefit 20 years down the road. Now, many of us get lost in those numbers where, like, all I know is I was able to afford college. Yay me. Right. <laughs> but OMB can go ahead and say it will have this kind of impact on the nation's economy in you know uh 2040 and you're like wow okay i mean these are people with you know masters and phds in public policy does mick Mul nick mulvaney have that yeah 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 okay so 
So that's just a regular thing for that office is to have a person who yeah who has those kinds yeah, of experiences. experiences. That's right. But the political people are the ones. I who wasn't are like, picking on yeah, him, by the way. I'm just curious. Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, so the, the 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 White House staff, you know, the the president, the vice president, the chief of staff, the deputy chief of staff, the you know, the communications office, they all get together and try to figure out how's the president's budget going to play with members of Congress? How's it going to play with various constituents? How's the media going to report this? Right. I mean, because the media is infamous for taking a president's budget and say, uh, yeah. well, in in the Department of Justice, they've set aside five million dollars for surveys of criminals. Why do we care what criminals have to say? <laughs> and you're like, well, if we're trying to figure out how to like have fewer people do criminal things in the future, might we not want to go ahead and figure out what motivates them? Well, or, you know, depending on what they're surveying, do we not want to improve the prison system? system or do we, you yes. know, I mean, there's all kinds of things that you would yeah. want to survey. Okay, But, but I can see where that th- might not play on the media because the media does that thing. And I'm not trying to slam the media because we love the media um, for the most part. All the media tries right. to do their jobs. But they also have... 10 seconds to get your attention like they don't have very long so they have to make it very short and very flashy sure to get your attention so they're going to say something like nih studies platypus for five billion dollars and you're like what we don't even have platypi in this country what the heck you know this is not australia and then come to find out that's part of a larger study of a, a huge number of mammals and blah, blah, blah. And it's all no, about this, right? There's this big, longer thing. But ecosystem they don't, impact, a blah, and, yeah, and, 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 and. But they don't explain that, you know, but the mangroves in Florida are what we're really worried about, right? Like they don't explain yeah. at that level because. Well, they, get pre- they have pressures too as an industry, right? right. I mean, uh, for me, the media is a necessary component of having a functioning democracy. But oh, yeah. at the same time, I also try to you know, understand that if the attention span of most American consumers of news is like 10 or 15 minutes, you know, 10 or 15 seconds. OK, well, guess what? Our news organizations are going to give us news bites that we can consume in 10 to 15 seconds. Right. I mean, you know, we're, we're part we're, we're part of that. I, I am part of that. I will admit <laughs> that I have an RSS feed. Yeah. And so if it doesn't say something fascinating. Now, I personally am terrible because I will go read all kinds of stuff. Yeah. But, but if it doesn't say something particularly exciting, I move on. And I, sure. I'm guilty of that as well. I would love to say that, oh, no, I'm a brilliant consumer of, of news. And I do try to get a lot of different kinds That's of news. news but i regularly do the major i i do all of the major cable networks across the course of a day well not the networks themselves don't watch tv but i but i look at their websites, websites. Sure. I, because i like to get the differences of opinion i don't want to know what cnn says fox is saying i want to know what fox is saying. saying yeah because cnn's going to have a slant on that whether they want to or not that's just because they're competitors you're never going to say my competitor did a brilliant job yeah, you of ever exploring see yeah. this you know yeah. exploring this subject they're not going to do that they're going to say my competitor is a big giant chucklehead and you should only listen to me yeah, because, because that's how ad revenue works. If yeah. you leave their website, then you 
Yeah, because if you go your... ahead and say my competitor, you know, did an excellent job, well, you know, me as a consumer, I'm like, oh well, then I should go, go there. there. <laughs> go there. I mean, come on, Al. If I'm, if I'm going to get a better quality uh, uh, news article. Well, I mean. Why, why am I going to go ahead and stick with you losers? I want to go with somebody who's doing a really good job, exactly. right? Exactly. So I think if you can get everybody's <laughs> different viewpoint by looking at them, and, you know, just a nice 10-minute, yeah. like, on each site kind of thing to pop in and say, okay, yeah. this is how people are viewing whatever this is, helps me make a decision that's a little more neutralized than yeah. if I chose one or the other. But anyway, so we're talking the beer and pizza meeting with the well, politicians— sure. Yeah, you're talking in the White House who yeah, have yeah. taken all the OMB's hard work and say, yeah, no. Yeah, I, they, we're not going to do this yeah. thing because it's going to read poorly. It's going to show up on whatever cable well, news I'll, network. I'll, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you my an, constituents in Iowa are going to hate it. I don't I'm not I'll doing give, this. I'll give you an example uh in the Bush 2 administration. Um he instructed OMB a number of different times to come up with uh, proposed changes to uh, the uh, Social Security system. Um, so this was, you know, the first decade of the new millennium. And there have been various studies that have gone ahead and shown that unless significant changes are made to uh, that particular system, um, that at some point in the decade of the 2020s, at the outset, 2030s, the Social Security system is going to be bankrupt. I mean, we have a demographics issue. This is the kind of thing that OMB is excellent at predicting, right? We're just going to have too many older Americans qualifying for Social Security and not enough younger Americans working and paying into the system. So the Bush administration, for a number of years, uh, you know, asked OMB, come up with suggested changes that we could propose to the United States Congress, first in the budget, but then more substantively in the Social Security Administration, to make the Social Security system viable, you know, through halfway of this, of, of this new millennium. OMB came up with a number of suggested changes. And for easily two or three years, the, the Bush White House folks said, no, we can't do that. Now, he wins re-election in 2004. And one of the first things he pitches in his second term is, okay, let's reform Social Security, right? And it died. Was that the privatization discussion? Yeah, privatization discussion. Because basically he was told by his own party in Congress, but also the Democrats, if you want to change the age eligibility, you know, you want to make it, you know, 72 or 73. Uh, or if you want to means... You change the income, you know, so, right? Yeah, the means yeah, test. Means, means tested. So that way, you know, wealthy Americans would only see either a small benefit or no benefit. Okay? This is a political non-starter. Okay? You might be able to get somewhere with privatization. Well, almost immediately, a whole bunch of, you know, advocates for older Americans are like, you want to privatize our retirement? Yeah, if you think the NRA is powerful, it's because you have not met the AARP. Yeah, if you think, yeah, you make a really good point. If you think the NRA, the National Rifle Association, is a powerful uh, interest group, um, as I tell my students, uh, the AARP, the American Association of Retired Persons, 
um, is even more potent in large part because their numbers are always growing. Um, the American society is, is what uh, demographers uh, uh, label is a graying society. You know, we're getting older. Gray hair. Oh, graying. Yeah, graying. I thought for yeah. a minute you said grain. No. And grain. I'm like, really like we're oats or corn, or, <laughs> yes. which wouldn't surprise me with subsidies, but <laughs> um, if we were just made of that. So yes. other than going all Soylent Green on this with <laughs> yeah. our old folks, no, um, we can't do much about that. That no. demographic just is what it is. It is. Which it, means that Social Security at some point is going to have to be adjusted or fixed or people are going to have to do without or, or, yeah, I or mean what it, have you. And, and again... And there are arguments to be made that the entire thing is a Ponzi scheme to start with, right? Some people pay in and old people take away out of the system. Uh, also, I have a friend who did the math on it one time and I think that the reality is that you don't... You know, people say, I paid in my whole life. But like the first three years, you get what you paid in. in. Yeah. And then after that, yes. it's just sure. um, money because we believe in taking care of old people in this country, which is a good thing. We, we believe that you shouldn't have to work until you actually drop dead in your office or in the classroom, which I would say would be both awesome and traumatizing for your students. Right. Like, you know, that the first thing they do is a Facebook post. <laughs> There's Augie big. died, and then they and then they they, they, uh, the they email the chair and say, "Dr. Perry, do we need to take the test <laughs> since Augie died?" Right? Like that's the first thing that would happen. I mean, well, I mean you know, they might call somebody to come get you. I mean, with millennials, um, you know, uh, they would probably uh, begin to record, right? <laughs> post on social media, um, and then they would probably go ahead and say, "Hey, wait a minute." There might be a benefit from this. Okay. <laughs> yes, psychologically, this is harming me. But can we get out of an exam or the paper that's due next exactly. week? I can't do this. I was so traumatized <laughs> by him dying in class. But it's Augie's fault. See, it's your fault because you're dead. Well, they already, already blame me. I mean, they blame me for why they're not going to law school. They blame me for <laughs> other psychological damage that I have um, imposed on them. <laughs> okay. I'm just like... How do I end up, you know, continue to teach? <laughs> <laughs> because you're also beloved and because you're very smart. Uh, well, so checks in the mail. Um, <laughs> since we're talking about Social Security. Anyways, so, but, 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 but this all gets back to the politics, the politics of the budget. Right. And, and, and sometimes uh, uh, people will go ahead and say, um, you know, why do they take into account? um, um uh why do they take into account uh, these 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 other concerns? You know what a constituent group might uh, might think, or whether or not Congress will like it. I'm like, but again, the fundamental thing to always remember about a budget is it's a statement of priorities. I mean, you you can yeah the the can, front of this budget actually says contains the budget budget message of the president, information on the president's priorities, and summary tables. Cool, you hadn't even read that, and you knew exactly what it said. Well, anybody, it's like you've done this for, for a living, living or, something. or something. But even if it's hard to conceptualize the federal government's budget as a statement of priorities, because it is a large document, as, as Nia pointed out, if you go ahead and print it, uh, it, it there was a uh, Reagan did this. <laughs> He started a State of the Union address um, with the federal government's budget, and he had the whole thing printed up, and it was massive, right? Well, this summary is 154 pages. That's the, the summary. summary. Yes. I don't even, I mean, 
Yeah. You can kill spiders. I'm just saying you can kill spiders with these books if you need to. I mean, if you're a person who would kill spiders, which I am. But I'm I'm sorry to all the entomologists out there who say, what? You kill spiders? That's terrible. I'm pretty sure that you could probably go ahead and kill not only spiders. (laughs) Probably bigger (laughs) things. things. That's right. Yeah, it's it's really. By the way, listeners, we're not recommending you go out and kill Okay. Right. Please don't. <laughs> yes, please don't. Um, but and if you do, please don't use the a federal document as your <laughs> weapon of choice. That's one. That's lame. And two, you that's the wrong kind of press. We're not looking for that kind uh, of press. press. But it's a statement of priorities. It, it also is electronic uh, these days because of the Paperwork Reduction Act of 1995. Yes, which yes. is makes everything electronic. electronic. That's right. So you can get this. We'll put this link for the for the budget. budget. Okay. But think about your own. Uh, family budget or your own personal budget um, and uh, the money you you take in because of work whatever um, and then what you spend money on what you spend money on can give an, an outsider uh, a pretty good idea of what your priorities are which is why the companies love when you have those cards that like get you discounts at the stores yes. because they can also track what you're buying. They can sure. see uh, Amazon, right, tracks what you buy, and there's yeah, all the creepy an, ads that come uh, on when you're looking at your email and something comes on. You're like, wait, I didn't uh, want that, but it tracks you down for however They have weeks. an algorithm that basically says, well, you know, hey, uh, Augie, if you bought this book in the past, you're more than likely want this, you know. This new book, book by that author, author or uh, yeah. On a similar subject, or yeah, the, yeah, yeah. You I mean, you bought this for your daughter three months ago. She's now three months older. She's probably ready for this. And you're like, how did they know? Well, because they're you know it's a statement of priority, right? Likewise with the federal government. So if the federal government spends, you know, uh, if nine, if ninety eight percent of the budget is on the Department of Defense. Depends. It sends a pretty clear message, uh, yeah. okay, to members of Congress, the public, the rest of the world, right, okay. which gets afraid really quickly, quickly right? <laughs> okay, yeah. um, so you have to understand that it's more than just about revenues and expenditures; it's sending messages, m- many of which are perceived politically. Um, so, if a particular presidential budget um, slashes uh, defense spending. You, met, you just mentioned defense spending. Right. Um, those who believe in a robust national security will be like, hey, wait a minute here. We're not concerned as much about our national security. But there's another element of politics to that. If the federal government spends less money on uh, the Defense Department, um, then there are certain states that begin to get worried. Oh, would they have large bases, or they, so or two, or they're Alaska, two, yes. and they're right there next, next to, to Russia. Russia. I mean, but I mean, there are two states in particular, California and our own state of Virginia, that have a significant percentage of their state's gross domestic product that is provided by federal government defense spending. Oh, defense contractors. Tra- yeah, in, in bases. So if they suddenly military. said we're not going to spend on the military, that would hurt us. Yeah, it's it's more than just contractors. Think I mean, of, it would hurt me working here at VCU because it mean, would hurt t- the economy of Virginia. I mean, you're talking about you know uh, military uh, service personnel, and and there's a ripple effect because if a base reduces the number of personnel they have working there, that personnel then is not spending money on 
uh, houses, cars, food, entertainment, etc. Pizza, pawn shops. I mean, if you go to Fort Bragg, I'm not slamming Fort Bragg in North Carolina. I love Fort Bragg. But there must be 400 car dealerships and pawn shops and pizza places right there close to base. Sure. um, That would be definitely hurt by... Also, if you want a really cheap guitar, that's a great place to get one is one of those pawn shops. But but now you're talking about how the budget becomes political. And becomes local. local. It becomes extremely local. So the president then spends basically the holidays, the month of January... Figuring the out the, the politics. Does he really do it over the holidays? Yeah, in some cases, yes. Does he? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because I mean, and is he making phone calls? Is that basically what this is? Is he sort of softening the ground? He's making phone calls and yeah, trying to find out. Okay, if I put this out here, are you going to freak out publicly? Are you going to support me? Are you going to? Yeah. Be? Either the president or the White White House staff are making phone calls. They're doing calculations. You know, who's going to hate this? Who's going to like this? What are the trade offs going to be? Um, what you know? What are they going to want in the budget? Um, so that they're willing to accept X that they probably wouldn't normally want, okay? And then the president submits their budget the first Monday in February. Now, by the way, the last couple of presidents in in the finest, if you will, college student, college professor (laughs) tradition. Started the night before. They didn't start the night before. Tell me that if it's due on Monday, they started on Friday night <laughs> they, or Saturday morning. They've been a little tardy in submitting their budget to Congress. <laughs> Do they get taken off a grade? That's it. You get, you're automatically only going to be able to get a B. Well, I mean, thank, you know, good thing for them that I was not either the Speaker of the House <laughs> or the Senate Majority Leader because, you know, in my world, they would get a zero. <laughs> Not accepting a late budget. Oh, that's it. No, 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 no yeah. money for you. <laughs> no money. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> That'll teach you. But here's the thing. In, in the, 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 the next part of this podcast where we look at the congressional response. Okay. Right. Um, once the president submits the budget, <laughs> Congress then can do whatever it wants to the budget. Because the president's budget just starts the, the discussion in Congress. Okay. So a year and a half of work, <laughs> work. and the and they could just make like flower car- carnations out of all the paper, sure, and put them in their offices and say done now, or they could burn it for heat or whatever, and not. Yeah, well, I mean, they're not going to because that would really, really upset yeah. the the relationship that you have yeah, with the White House. Yeah, I mean, they're I mean, they not going to burn it, but they the, could the, basically. Say, How nice for you. Yeah, That's well, not what we're going to do. Well, I mean. W- and again, this was during the Bush two presidential administration. Um, one of the years, both houses of Congress were controlled by the Republicans. He submitted his budget, and the appropri- one of the Appropriations Committee chairpersons, it was either in the House or the Senate, went on C-SPAN and said, yeah, the president's budget's basically dead on arrival. And this was a member of his own party. <laughs> I remember reading it, wow. and I was just like, dude. <laughs> This sucks for you. Yeah, that's right? that's, that's harsh. <laughs> yeah. And this was a member of his own party. Well, yeah, that's not even a Democrat saying <laughs> that about him. That's, yeah, right. You know, that's okay. Like, so you know when Trump went, uh, President Trump went ahead and said, um, "I'm not going to go ahead and sign this budget deal without money for the wall," right? You kind of expect that the Democrats were going to go ahead and say, "Yeah, there's not going to be any money for a wall," right? You, you kind right. of you kind of expected that. But when your own, you know, members of your own party say, yeah, you're not getting any money for that, you're like, 
Oh. Okay. <laughs> well, this is good. This Back is good. to the drawing board. This is going to be contentious. <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to. We're not going to have fun. Well, money is contentious anyway, though. Right? Sure. Money is money is the is is both the grease that that moves things, things. but also the brick that stops things. Right. There's, sure. There's some. There's a lot of frustration around budgets and what budgets should do, and and sticking to them versus not sticking to them. And at some point, I'd like to talk to you about deficits, um, because that seems like a weird way to run your country, right? Is deficits. And there's that whole. If you go to Times Square, wherever it is, with the big clock that basically tries to terrify you about how much each individual American. Uh, it doesn't try to terrify you. It does terrify you if you look at that number and you think, "Holy cow, we'll never get out from under this." But if it's imaginary money, which some well, of it, it is, it's, it's, some of it is and some of it isn't, it would be interesting to talk about that at some point, but that's podcast for another day. Yes, it is. So we are going to conclude this podcast, and we are going to come back together and discuss the, res- the congressional response well, and how money actually gets to the agencies. Yes. Thank you. You are welcome. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.